What does the Lord require of you? Today we find ourselves at the midpoint of our 12-part sermon series entitled Major League, a study of the minor prophets. We're confronted by the book of Micah. It's to that book I invite you to give your attention. This morning, by the Spirit's power, I want to preach a sermon that's entitled Redemptive Requirements. Redemptive Requirements. Micah chapter 6, I want to read the first eight verses. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Micah chapter 6, allow me to begin at verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. May God add the richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. I want to frame this message on four commands. Listen up, think back, bow down, live out. Listen up to the word of God. It's verses 1 and 2. Think back upon our redemption. It's verses 3 to 5. Bow down in worship. It's verses 6 and 7. Live out the gospel. It's verse 8. First and foremost, you and I are to listen up to the word of God. In verse 1, our passage simply begins, listen to what the Lord says. There are a lot of voices vying for your attention in this culture. There is so much noise. It is so deafening. This morning I ask you, can you still hear the voice of God? Can you still hear his word spoken to you, his people? Listen up to the word of God. In verses 1 and 2, God sets the courtroom scene. He has an accusation to level against his people. He calls in the jury. It's the hills and the mountains. 
They are the ones who have been established from the very foundation of the earth. They can testify to God's goodness and his righteousness. God is speaking through the prophet named Micah. Micah lived in the 8th century B.C. He lived during the divided kingdom, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Micah is one of those few minor prophets who has a word of condemnation to both Israel and Judah. From the outset of the book, he says that God has something to say to Samaria and to Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel would be eventually overtaken by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. Micah predates that inevitable attack, but he says it accurately that it's going to happen. He also has a word of condemnation for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah, while Jerusalem survived the initial attack from Assyria. It was about 135 years later that the Barbaric Babylonians would invade the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C., cart them off, take them captive into Babylon. Now the question this morning I ask you is, is, is why would God permit pagan nations to take captive his people? And it's a one-word answer. The answer is sin. God's people had unrepentant sin and they failed to listen to the Lord. All throughout the book, Micah interweaves both gloom and glory. There's a lot more gloom than there is glory in the book of Micah. In chapter 1, the Lord promises, I will smash all the idols of Israel. In chapter 2, the Lord says that if a false prophet came to you promising beer and wine, he would be just the prophet for this people because you are so reckless in your negligence towards God, even what you consume. Chapter 3, the Lord says of his people, you hate what is good and you love what is evil. In chapter 4, the Lord promises to the people of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah, you will go to Babylon. In chapter 5, the Lord speaks to the prophet Micah, And Micah declares to the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria will invade our land and Assyria will march through our fortresses. In chapter 6, the Lord just describes his people as the rich being violent, as people being liars. And all they do is speak deceit. In chapter 7, the Lord says, you are so wicked and so evil that both your hands are skilled in doing evil. God has so much to level against his people. Um, God is patient, but he's not a pushover. Payday comes someday, and there's a price to be paid for people and individuals and nations who do not listen to the Lord. This morning I ask, can you hear the voice of God? There's so many voices that are vying for your attention. Voices that create constant noise from friends and family, from celebrities and entertainers, from your classmates, your colleagues, your teammates, from people in the media, from trendsetters, from talking heads on the television. I mean, all types of people are speaking into your life. There's so much noise. There's so much volume. There's so much chaos. Can you still hear the voice of God? Listen up to the word of God. 
God levels an indictment against his people because his people refused to repent of sin. May you and I not be just like them, the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Listen up to the word of God. But secondly, we are to think back upon our redemption. God begins this indictment in verses 3, 4, and 5. He begins in a very interesting way. He simply asks them, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? By reading that question, there's an implied response that has already been leveled against God. For the people of God said, the God of the people, you are a burden to us. All of your rules, all your regulations, it's a burden to us. We've got so many other things to do, so many other people to see, so many other things that are vying for our attention. There's so many, so much else swirling around us that when we think about you, God, you're just one more thing to put on our calendar. You're just one more thing to add to our agenda. You're just one more thing. You are a burden to us. And God asked his people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Now, there is a a glimpse of glory in the midst of the gloom, for on two occasions in verses 3, 4, and 5, God calls the people my people. Disobedience had not disqualified them from being children of God. That their raunchy rebellion, it had not annulled their adoption papers. In verse 3 and in verse 5, the Lord still calls them my people. He still calls us my people. Even though we are defiant in our sin and disobedient in our actions, we are still the people of God because there's nothing we can do to sever ourselves from the Savior. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God just simply loves you. And it's not based on your performance. It's based on his passion. And God loves you in spite of your disobedience. He still calls them my people. But he asks a question that demands an answer. In fact, God says, answer me. What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? That somehow you think that I am just overwhelming. And somehow you think that I'm just a nuisance unto you. Something else to add to your already overstuffed calendar. What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Let's answer that question. What has God done to us? All God did is deliver us from sin. All God did is redeem us from the shackles of our slavery. All God did was make us alive through his mercy. We were stillborn because of sin, yet God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. The only thing God has done for us is he saved us. He's redeemed us. He's rescued us. What has God done to us? He has delivered us from the shackles of sin. He couches this uh, argumentation in the fact that he wants them to think back upon our redemption. Remember, Micah is speaking to people in the 700s B.C. And he asks them to recall what took place some 700 years before their day. It was God. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he rescued his children from Egyptian captivity. Let me be very clear. The greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is the Exodus event. 
But the greatest act of deliverance in all the Bible and in all human history is what Jesus did for us at the cross of Calvary. Because Jesus died so that we might live. Our slave master was not Pharaoh. Our slave master was something far worse. For we were enslaved to our sin. We were indebted to our own demise. And because of our sinfulness, we were, we were uh, just shackled in our sin. And Jesus, who is greater than Moses, Jesus, who is the righteous redeemer, Jesus came and he liberated us from our captivity. So the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament is the Exodus event, but the greatest act of deliverance in all the Bible and in all human history is what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago at Calvary's Hill. And Jesus set us free. Micah just simply reminds the people, hey, think back upon our redemption. It is God who liberated us. It is God who set us free. It is God that raised up that washed out seasoned shepherd named Moses. He had murder on his rap sheet. And God used him at the ripe young age of 80 to go to Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. It was God who sent the 10 plagues. It is God who told the Israelites to take a one-year-old lamb, a perfect lamb without blemish, spot, or defect, to kill it, take its blood, and paint it on the doorpost of the house. And on that night, when the angel of death came through all of Egypt, that angel would pass over any house that had the blood of the lamb on it. And the angel of death would leave life in that house. But where there was no blood of the lamb, there was death, killing of the firstborn among men and animals. It is God who moved upon Pharaoh's heart to let God's people go. It is God who enabled the Israelites to leave Egypt with their loot. It is God who made a way out of no way, who made a path in the sea. It is God who, when they got between a rock and a hard place with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his army behind them, it is God who separated the water so the people could cross on dry ground. It is God who led them through the desert. It is God that brought them to the promised land. God is simply saying to his people, what have I done for you? Think back upon our redemption. It is God who liberated you, friend. In our passage, he says, I sent Moses and Miriam and Aaron, and they led you by my direction. And God says, I never abandoned you, did I? I never left you. I never turned my back on you. Do you remember what Balak, the king of Moab, tried to do when he hired the prophet Balaam for a handsome price? And Balak, the king of Moab, said to the prophet Balaam, I want you to call down curses upon this nation of Israel, for they are coming at me, and they are so large and so numerous. And God was so powerful that every time Balaam opened his mouth to speak a curse, God transformed the curse into a blessing. If you've been redeemed by God, you are blessed. You have the favor of God. There's no one and nothing in this world who can curse you because you're in the protective custody of God Almighty. You are favored. You are blessed. You are redeemed. And this God promises, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God goes so far as to even speak to Balaam through Balaam's donkey. I mean, God did remarkable things. And the Lord said, did I not escort you along your journey from Shittim to Gilgal? Now, Shittim, that was the last place the Israelites encamped in Moab and Gilgal. That's the first place the Israelites encamped when they got to the promised land. What God is reminding his people through his prophet Micah is that from 
the last place to the first place, from the first place to the last place, from beginning to the end, from stem to stern, however you want to say it, alpha and omega, God has always been with his people. One of the greatest promises of God's word that's repeated over and over again is the Lord declares, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, never, ever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Think back upon our redemption. What has God done to you? Well, the only thing he did was save me. I mean, the only thing he did was redeem me. The only thing he did is set me free for his service. I mean, God has been so good to us. In this passage, we are told to listen up because our sin is that bad. And we're also told to think back because our God is just that good. Can you think back to the time when God opened up your eyes unto his salvation? Can you think back and remember along your journey how God has been with you through thick and thin, high and low, up and down, good times and bad? Can you also testify like Micah is testifying that that God has never left me? He has never forsaken me. In fact, God has never left his people at any time in history. And if he's never left his people through all of history, he's certainly not going to start right now. I mean, God is a God who favors his people and blesses his people and accompanies his people regardless of what you're going through. I can remember. It was April the 15th, 1981. I was nearly a seven-year-old boy. And on that night, God enabled me to realize my sin and recognize my Savior. On that night, I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin, to come in and be the Lord and Savior of my life, and he did. Now, I've been walking with Christ for several decades now. I'm a little bit older than seven. But along the journey, God has enabled me to realize my sin even greater and to recognize my Savior even deeper. Because even today I can understand the reality of my sin and the greatness of my Savior. And and Jesus has saved me. And I can testify that at every stage and every season along the journey, God has never abandoned me. Could you testify to that? God has brought you to some things, hasn't he? And God has brought you through some things. God has made a way when there seemed to be no way. God has pointed you unto him when it looked like everything was going in the opposite direction. God brought you through that cancer. God brought you through that car wreck. God brought you through that heart disease. God brought you through that unemployment. God brought you through that marital difficulty. God brought you through that dilemma with your child. God brought you through that sin. God brought you through that storm. God brought you through that tragedy. God brought you through the death of your spouse. God brought you through the tragic death of your child. God brought you through some horrific things in your life. God brought you to it and God brought you through it. I wish God would give me a church this morning who could just simply testify that our God really is that good. I can just listen up to God and I can think back upon our redemption. But Micah also tells the people to bow down in worship, verses 6 and 7. It's here that you almost hear a rebuttal come from the congregation. They're asking the question, but what shall I bring to this exalted God? What can I bring to him? What will appease him? 
What religious act can I do that will satisfy his requirements for me? What do I need to do? The people in the days of Micah, they were weary of worship but willful to do whatever was needed to appease their God. That's kind of a dangerous place to be. Weary of worship but willing to do whatever in an effort to please God. They were weary, yet they were willing. They thought God was just something they had to add to their schedule. He was almost a burden to them. So this one who they perceived as a burden, they simply came and said, okay, what one thing do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. Is it burnt offerings? I'll make it happen. Is it calves a year old? Because clearly they cost more than newborn calves. So if you want calves a year old, I'll bring it. A thousand rams, I'll get it done. 10,000 rivers of oil, I don't know how, but I'll do it. Do you even want me to kill my firstborn son, the fruit of my life for the sin of my soul? This would be excruciatingly hard and difficult, but Lord, if that's the one religious act that I've got to do in order to please you and appease you, I'll even do that. Is that what you want me to do? You tell me the religious action and I'll do it. Somehow, someway, I'll make it happen. I'll perform it. I'll execute it. I'll, I will do what needs to be done just to get you off my back, just to please you so I can meet the requirements in order to be redeemed. It's at this point that I hope that you hear under this passage the whispering echo of Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. God doesn't want a religion with you. God wants a relationship with you. God is more concerned with you than what you can do for him. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. God just simply, he wants you. He wants you to know him personally. He wants you to know him powerfully. He wants to know you he wants you to know him. He wants a relationship with you. Yes, we bow down in worship, but it's not as a religious act. It is because of the righteous deeds of God Almighty. There's a huge difference. We don't bow down in worship just as a religious act in order to please a holy God. No, we bow down in worship because of the righteous deeds that God has done. We listen up, we think back, and we bow down. It happens in that order. We listen up to the word of God. We think back upon our redemption. And in light of that, it prompts us to bow down in worship, not to try to appease God, not to try to please him, not to try to earn brownie points with him, but we worship him just just because of his righteous actions in our life. Our worship is a response to salvation. Our worship is not a requirement for salvation. We worship from our salvation. We do not worship for our salvation. 
The way we respond to God in worship is simply to respond to a holy God because we know that we are unholy and we're in need of his forgiveness and his salvation and we listen to him and we think back about what he has done and the only rightful response is to bow down in worship because he is just that good. Friend, I've told you before, but it bears repeating, your sin is that bad and your God is that good. Our sin really is that bad. And our God really is that good. So here, Micah is telling us to listen up and to think back and to bow down. And fourth and finally, to live out. To live out the gospel. In verse 8, the Lord has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, it means that everything you do is done for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That that everything that you do, you do in an effort to do it the right way. And God is the one who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. You don't get to decide what is right and what is wrong. When you act justly, you do everything in an effort to do the righteousness of God. Act justly. To love mercy. To love mercy means that you're obsessed with overwhelming compassion and warm-hearted tenderness towards other people, regardless of who the other people are. Other people like you, other people not like you, other people that have helped you, other people that have harmed you, other people that you know, other people that you don't know. To love mercy is just to say you're obsessed with loving kindness towards other people and to walk humbly with your God. That means that you completely are surrendered to Christ. That you live your life in complete surrender to Christ. So what does God require of you? He requires of you to love obedience persistently, love others passionately, and love God perfectly. That's it. That's all God requires. What God requires of you is perfection. What God deserves from you, what God demands from you is sheer perfection. That's it. All you've got to be is perfect. All you've got to do is perfection. What does God require of you? Perfection. He deserves it. He demands it. Um, He deserves and demands for you just to love obedience persistently and to love others passionately and to love God perfectly. He just deserves and demands for you to be perfect. You've got to be perfect in order to be redeemed. It's at this point that you need to sit there and think to yourself, I'm not even getting a passing mark on any of those three. I'm failing all the time. I mean, I, I, I kind of do my best. But when it comes to perfection, I fall short. There's no way. I, I, don't, I don't act justly all the time. I don't, I don't love people passionately all the time. I don't love God perfectly all the time. I mean, I am a sinner at the core of my humanity. You are too. All of us are sinful. There's not one righteous. No, not one. And God demands perfection from us. What are the requirements? We've got to be perfect. 
the previous line, Micah says, the Lord has showed you, old man, what is good. Not only has God shown us what is good, but God has shown us who is good. In Micah, we find this description. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one of the most familiar passages of Micah's seven-chapter prophecy. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, though you are the smallest, you are the smallest clan in Judah, out of you will come a ruler for my people. It is Matthew in his gospel who shows us that the ultimate fulfillment of Micah's prophecy is found and bound in the birth narrative of Jesus the Christ. For Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one who is greater than David. Jesus is the one who was born in the city of David. Jesus is the one who was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, because he is uh, the bread of life for you and for me. It is Jesus who comes out of Bethlehem. And Matthew says this is the ultimate fulfillment of what Micah said because Jesus is the only one who is perfect in every way. Jesus is the only one who accomplishes righteousness. Jesus is the only one who shows mercy. Jesus is the only one who perfectly walks humbly with God. It is Jesus who is sheer perfection. He is the God-man, fully God and fully human. Not a 50-50 split. Not an 80-20 split, not 60-40 one way or the other. I mean, Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly human. As the God-man, he is one who pursues justice persistently. And he pursues mercy to others passionately. And he pursues a humbleness towards God perfectly. It is only in Jesus that we find this fulfillment. So in John chapter 6, this Jesus said there is one work of God. There is one requirement from you. What does God require from you? If you can't be perfect, there's only one thing that God requires from you. According to John chapter 6, to believe on him who was sent. To believe upon Jesus who was sent from God Almighty. The word believe means to have faith. It is John R.W. Stodd who reminds us that the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If grace offers us forgiveness of sin, by faith we accept it. If grace offers us salvation, by faith we accept it. If grace offers us a home in heaven, by faith we accept it. Whatever grace offers, by faith we accept it. For the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. What does God require of you? He requires of you to surrender completely to the Savior. Because you and I are not perfect and only the Savior is perfect. And a sweet transaction took place at the cross of Calvary where we gave Jesus our sin and he gave us his salvation. It's a sweet swap. It's a great transaction. It is there on that faithful Friday when Jesus died for all of our mess ups. When Jesus died for all of our condemnation. When Jesus died for all of our sin. Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might enjoy his heaven and endure his life and enjoy his life both now and forevermore Jesus died so that we might live and Jesus is the one who offers us complete perfection in him and the one requirement that God has of you is to live in surrender under the Savior it was Adrian Rogers 
who said, the difference between rejection in the sight of God and acceptance in the sight of God is the difference between commitment and surrender. People who are merely committed to Christ, chances are they might be rejected by Christ. People who surrender unto Christ, I promise you, will be accepted in God's sight by Christ. You say, wait a minute, time out, pastor, you lost me there. You said that commitment is a bad thing and surrender is a good thing? I thought commitment was a good thing. I thought it's good for us to be committed. I mean, isn't that what we want? We want church members that are committed under Christ. But Adrian Rogers appropriately says that the word commitment, the word surrender has been replaced by the word commitment in our vernacular. Because the problem with commitment is that I'm the one who's in charge of my commitment. I mean, if I tell you I'm committed to Christ, I'm committed to reading my Bible, I'm committed to praying every day, I'm committed uh, to trying to eat right, I'm committed to trying to be generous, I'm committed to trying to help other people, I'm committed. Who's the one calling the shots? Who's the one in charge? It's me. But you can't say the word surrender without throwing up your hands, can you? Because when you surrender, you release and relinquish all control. I surrender. You're the one calling the shots. What does God require of you? It is so much more than commitment. It is surrender. Where you say unto God, I'm not in charge. You are. I surrender everything unto you. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Jesus, help me to surrender everything unto you. What I can't surrender to you, I invite you to come in and to take. There is a great difference between commitment and surrender. And the American church is overstuffed with commitment and calls for commitment. I'm not calling you to commit to anything today. I'm calling you to surrender unto the Savior today. What does God require of you? Complete surrender to the Savior. He's shown us what is good and who is good. And it's none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the perfect personification of one who acts justly, loves mercy, walks humbly with our God. The only way for us to do those virtues is through the power of Christ living in us and through us. If all we do is try to lift up those virtues and say to one another, we're going to try to do better at acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, we're just going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're just going to dig deeper and try harder. We're just going to do better at those things. Friends, if you try to do those attributes without the gospel or in place of the gospel, the end result will be futility, failure, and frustration. Inevitably, you and I will fail if we try to do this ourselves. Inevitably, we may do okay some days, we'll do really bad other days. There's no way we can do these virtues without the gospel. There's no way we can do these virtues in place of the gospel. It is only with the gospel that we can live out the truth of these virtues because it's Christ living in us, Christ living through us. It's all about Jesus. So we surrender unto him. Now, you say to me, but 
but why should I surrender unto the Savior? And my answer is because God emptied out the treasure chest of heaven to secure your salvation. He sent the crown jewel of heaven. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. God gave his best to accomplish your salvation because that's how much it cost. He sent perfection in order to save you. The least you and I can do is totally surrender unto him. Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem barn. He was raised in obscurity. He had a ministry for about three years out of Galilee. It is this Jesus who called together a ragtag bunch of rednecks and they changed the world. At the end of three years, Jesus was handed over. He was convicted as a criminal. He died a criminal's death even though he never committed one sin. No, Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. He died so that we might live. And Jesus was beaten, not for his sins, but for our sins. They strapped a crossbeam to his back. He was led outside the city gate. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there, Jesus permitted and allowed the Roman soldiers to stretch him wide, driving rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They pierced his side with a sword hoisted him into the air. He dangled there precariously on a cross made of wood. For a few hours, God squeezed an eternity's worth of your condemnation upon Jesus. And Jesus bowed his head and gave up his ghost. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They took his dead body off the cross. They placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a massive stone in front of it. But on the third day, on the first day of the week, on Easter Sunday morning, The one who was dead became alive again. Jesus got up to prove once and for all that he had the currency to pay our sin debt. And he was the adequate substitute to die our death. So Jesus, the God-man, burst forth from the tomb. He ascended to the heavens with the promise that one day he'll come back in like manner. Jesus is the one who accomplished our redemption. He's the one who secures our salvation. We should be completely surrendered and submitted unto him. He is worth it. Everything we have, we give unto him because he alone is the savior of the universe. You get to the very end of Micah chapter 7, verses 18, 19, and 20. And Micah just says, who is a God like you? Who is a God who can forgive Who is a God that will not stay angry forever? Who is a God like you that treads our sins underfoot? Who is a God like you that hurls our iniquities into the depths of the sea? I don't know about you, but I'm glad to have a God who hurls. He hurls our sin into the depths of the sea. Our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. It no longer is accounted unto us. It no longer is reckoned as belonging to us. He took our sin. He took our iniquity. He took our our, our disobedience and he cast it he hurled it as far as the east is from the west friend I came this morning to tell you that your sin is that bad and our God is that good I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say neighbor okay y'all can do better look at your neighbor and say neighbor your sin is that bad and neighbor our God is that good 
Friend, your sin is that bad, and our God is that good. Your sin really is that bad. Our God really is that good. Your sin is just that bad. Our God is just that good. I wish there was somebody who could testify with me this morning that our sin really is that bad, and our God, he really is that good. So this morning we listen up, we think back, we bow down, and we live out. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you declare that you're a sinner in need of a Savior just like Jesus. And Jesus promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to sing a song. As soon as we sing that song, if you need to make public your decision to surrender everything to Jesus, to throw up your hands and say, Jesus, I'm not in charge, you are. If you need to accept this Savior and surrender unto him, do it the first moment the note is struck. If you're here today and you are a Christian, but somewhere along the journey, somehow you have come to the thought that God is a burden to you. That God is just something else you got to add to your already overstuffed schedule. And maybe this morning, you just need to listen up and think back and bow down and live out the gospel. The altar's open for you to come and pray. Maybe you need to come and join this church. Now's the time to do that. Whatever the Spirit of God is doing in your life, won't you respond in obedience through the power of Christ? Because don't forget, our sin, it really is that bad. And our God, he really is that good. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you will help us to respond in obedience unto you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.